Hi, this is Michael Lowe, and you're listening to May I Ask You a Question, Quarantine Episode 2. In the last episode, we spoke with Ben Keller about his ministry and website, Saybrook Ministries. This episode, we take a stroll down one of Ben's personal loves, drumming. We discuss the genesis of his percussion love, his drumming hero, Neil Peart, and how drumming has fit into his Christian perspective. As before, a link for his website is in show notes. Also, like last episode, this one is a little bit longer, but I didn't want to break it up. Thanks for listening. Okay, so uh, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, uh, I, I've heard, and I don't know if you've told me, but I've heard that if if money were not an object, Ben would want to be a drummer for his career, for his life. And it's kind of it sounds kind of funny to, to to say off on the heels of talking about Saybrook, but yeah, uh, Saybrook probably marries uh, all of your passions and excitements a little bit uh, more cleanly, yes, and allows you to stay at home uh, more easily than saying being a, a touring musician would be. But you love drumming, yes. Um, I'm curious to know because I, I I played instruments growing up as any good Chinese kid would, and <laughs> yeah, I hate well, it. and I, I I follow in the vein of Edwards uh, and uh, Spurgeon as drummers, and uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you always like, wait, really? <laughs> they love music? Uh, no, and so um, uh, so I I I I'm familiar with music, how to read it to some extent, although uh, it's a little bit in my past and. Sorry, mom and dad, but I didn't haven't used the money well enough uh, today. What, what place does drumming have in your life? Like, I know you love it. It's you have a cover band that you mm-hmm. uh, perform with uh, mm-hmm. what, a couple times a year. Yeah, probably actually, yeah, half a dozen times a year, probably. Okay. So, uh, why why do you love it so much? Let's start there. Hmm. Well, that's okay. Um, uh... I can answer that, and I cannot answer that. So <clears throat> I'm going to do the can answer it first. Um, actually, let's do the cannot answer it. I cannot answer it in the sense that ever since I was four, I simply knew yeah. that of everything I was hearing on the radio through our awesome <laughs> old wood eight-track record player, which I think... Had That's the, impressive had the, had for a 28-year-old to remember that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which had the... I'm pretty, I was, I'm pretty convinced it has the tweeters blown out, because everything I was hearing was, like, simply in the bass range. But um, that the drums were the instrument for me. So there was no... You always listened to the drum line? Or yeah. That was always compelling to, to me. Ever since okay. three or four years old, uh, before school, you know... Uh, I was at home, older siblings were gone at school, and I would ask mom to play, and I would use the pots and pans. And yeah, so, I'm sure she loved that. Oh, absolutely. It was just <laughs> unbridled joy. <laughs> um, no, she was very long-suffering. Um, so that's the part that I can't explain it where it was just... You were just inexplicably drawn to Deposited, it. right. Yeah. Um, uh, then as I got older... Um, and started listening to music a little more intentionally. Um, uh, the specifics of grooves, drum sounds, the aesthetics of the drums themselves, the appearance, um, everything about it just was more and more appealing to me until I finally got my own drums when I was 17. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just kind of, I was, so I was the, you know, I would draw it used to be these things called peachies. What is that? <laughs> at school. Oh. <laughs> it was a, the, these, the folders. It was the classic folder, you know, old farts don't know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> there, there was like a design. Like there was, it was like kind of this, uh, there was graphics of somebody playing baseball or okay. tennis or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This was a peachy. And, the, and also oh. it was kind of a ritualistic rite of passage to um, artistically adorn you're peachy with, um, in some, in most cases, PG uh, artistic renderings. Yeah. But I'm sure in some quarters, in some schools, it was uh, decidedly not PG renderings. Certainly not yours, though. No. Mine was very, uh, very <laughs> G, very PG. Um, no, no believing. Yeah. No, I would exegete Greek on it. <laughs> um, and so, but no, but I, I would draw drums and, you know. So okay. it was it was kind of a... Love affair that just kind of was it your first love before like almost anything else in your life? Yeah, probably. Like even before faith. Yeah. Like you probably love drums. Yeah. Um, 
It, it, and just just for information's sake, what's uh, give the name of your cover band? Miss Sydney and the Downtown Saints. So that came out of. And you're um, not Miss Sydney. I'm not Miss Sydney, as you're far as I know. I don't, <laughs> Good. No, that's 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 twenty first century yeah, speak. <laughs> that's Sydney Jensen, um, who's a wonderful singer, lead vocalist. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like three old farts and a wonderful, talented young female singer. Mm. Um, but what it's the story is kind of interesting, actually, where I was on a youth retreat. Mm-hmm down in Oregon and, and my friend Tyler Vanderplug, who I had played with in college, knew him and uh, guitar player. He went to a local Baptist church. The other three members of the band, other than myself at that time, were going to this church. Church was gonna have an outdoor community rummage sale, mm-hmm. wanted music for it. Yeah. And so Tyler was like, hey, will you play? We're gonna do like a bunch of stuff from the 60s and 70s, a few couple worship songs and just be out there and I'm like it's all the same and then he said um, we're going to have Gerald Johnson on bass and then I panicked a little because I was like Gerald Johnson he played with like Steve Miller like like he was a known entity as, as not as a personal acquaintance but yeah. as, as a, as a yeah, like, pro- yeah, professional a, musician right yeah because he wasn't to me but right yeah um, so um, I said you know what I'll do it um and we got together, practiced, started having a good time, and had a real fun time on the gig. It was miserably hot. Mm. I mean, oppressively hot. <laughs> um, so the, the, that part of it was brutal, but we had a lot of fun playing and realized, uh, you know, there might be something here like yeah. to do. Yeah. How long ago was that, you said? That would have been summer of 2017. Okay. Oh, so fairly recent. Okay. Yeah. Um, August of 2017. So, and then Gerald had an acquaintance who, he's been sober for like 30 years, and a gal that he's been with in sobriety meetings for years and years and years uh, was having an 80th birthday party, and so we played at that. Of an, so there was a fair amount of people there, maybe 100, 150 people there. who We were the music for the party. And yeah. And then it just kind of flowed from there, like, well, what else do we want to do? And so there's been a nice work-life balance where mm. everybody's realistic about, like... Well, we have families that we value. And, right. Yeah. And, and uh, this, you know, unless something bizarre happens, there's not going to be any world tour or anything like that. Right. But... So you're uh, not opposed to it? No, I'm not... I'm, <laughs> no, for the right... Uh, it's right, it's certainly right took a change. it's certainly the <laughs> they it this gets to the three pronged stool of when you're making decisions as an artist or specifically let's say musician. How do I know whether to take the gig? Uh-huh. Okay, I have three prongs of this stool. Um, is it good people? Is it good music? Is it good money? Hmm. So if if it's none of those, you say no. Right. If it's two of them, you say yes. Okay. If it's three of them, that's probably going to be the experience of your career that you're always going to cherish. Mm. So, and that's icing on the cake because yeah. it's usually not three. Yeah. Um, so yeah, certainly if someone, I already got, I got the right people. Yeah. We got the right music. Yeah. And if somebody was like, I'm going to throw a massive pile of money at you. Right. So go have fun for five years. Then I'd say, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so you're open to it and your family is open to that too? Well, I mean, we have. I mean, t- I'm not saying the pile of money, but like just the because the, the, there's time costs too, right? Right. To uh, no, to but I think on, with my family loves music and they know. Uh, I think that they would if that really happened, and we're talking. You know, this is highly hypothetical. Sure. Um, that they would they would uh, give it their blessing and say, it's not like they wouldn't ever see me, but you know they. Because I would assume included in the pile of money is the means for either the family to come along for portions of the tour or sure. go home or yeah. So, um, so you've you've always loved it. Yep. Do you just kind of lose yourself and when you're when you're playing and practicing? Like, does does time just kind of stop for you? Uh, like you could look at the clock and four hours later, you're like, oh, that felt like twenty minutes. No, it's never really been like that for me. It is for some. Um, I've heard musicians say those kind of things. It's not. It hasn't been that way for me. Hmm. Um, where 
but the, definitely the enjoyment is there. So I guess part of part of saying it that way is that it doesn't feel like work though to you. No, playing. that's that's correct. Yeah. It it felt aspects of it felt like work as I was gaining my vocabulary. Sure, uh, talk about that because I've heard you talk about drumming being a language. That is, I, I guess, I could understand it conceptually, but it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So for instance, um, um, everything that a drummer does, you know, you got two hands and two feet. And your vocabulary is figuring out how I, how am I going to make these? And I have a, a drum set instrument in front of me. Mm-hmm. How am I going to make good sound out of it using these four limbs, uh, playing in time? Uh, and then once you can play in time, you have to play as you develop. Then you play with feel. Mm. So, for instance, a ten-year-old starting drummer could play the same beat technically yeah. that the 60-year-old can, but the 60-year-old is going to feel and sound differently. And kind of connect with you than, as an audience. Than the 10-year-old would, because um, he has the finesse and experience, um, and that gets into kind of what Benny Grab, another great drummer, calls the art and science of groove. Hmm. In other words, the reason this drummer sounds different from this drummer playing the same exact beat is there's subtleties that you're not aware of. Right. Everything from stick choice to these sticks sound different in everybody's hands. Right, right. Um, but the vocabulary, in, in a certain sense, on, on the drum set, is simple in the sense that uh, everything I do is going to be usually a combination of one or two notes with any given limb at any given time. Mm-hmm. So the rudimental vocabulary for drummers, as drummers learn rudiments that have funny names like paradiddle and ratamacue and stuff like that, are combinations of single strokes. So single strokes are just alternating right, left, right, left. Right, right. Single strokes. Yeah. Double strokes are right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left. Okay. And then there are any infinite variety of those things. Paradiddle is right, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. And all these things help build muscle memory and um, limb independence and, yeah. and speed and articulation and all these things. Interesting. So all the all that you're doing as a drummer is applying this rudimental vocabulary to a drum set. Yeah, that's you're taking your your sticks and your feet and you're applying that vocabulary to this drum set. Mm-hmm. Um, so that takes some pain to learn. Yeah, um, and with things like a, sing, a double stroke roll, um, if I'm going to do right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left, um, fast. Yeah then my hands have to get to the point, my muscles have to get to the point where I reach a certain breakthrough where I realize that I'm letting the stick do the work for me to a mm-hmm. large degree. Mm-hmm. And most young drummers... Are still uh, trying to force it to do it. They're forcing it. Yeah. And uh, they have to learn how to let the take advantage of the energy of the stick um, do, doing it for them so that they can, nice, they can get speed, articulation, and clean sound and not completely be sweating buckets it's interesting you say it that way and i said interesting in the middle (laughs) i hope it didn't sound sarcastic no because it wasn't mostly um and uh but it it, it is interesting because uh i remember hearing this one pastor and uh he was probably in his 60s at the time and i remember hearing another pastor who's probably in his 30s or early 40s and you just you hear a difference between like one they were both expositing scripture and just really kind of opening up the text to help you understand it better but this the guy who was in his 60s you just felt like this guy knows how he is heard mm-hmm. as opposed to this other guy he, it was it was great it was encouraging he knows what he wants to say but he may not know exactly how the audience is going to hear it. and that's kind of what i hear you saying a little bit about in terms of the technical build up of drumming like okay i know what i'm supposed to do in terms of you know, I don't know all the combinations you said, sure. but like the uh, the order and combination of your hands and legs and feet, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then over time, you begin to think about, put pieces together like, okay, I know how to do this, I know how to do that. I, if I put it in this combination with those things, this could really help, you know, a piece flow or this would be really awesome in a drum solo. Like you learn how, to, how it uh, can have a place within... Um, a musical context and you know whether it's a performance or just you know just 
you know, tinkering around type of thing. Is that kind of yeah? Am, am I understanding yeah how you're talking about it? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And there's um, uh, all these fun little discoveries along the way where. Um, Way back in the day, this is before my time, so a lot of the drummers that I listened to as, as my heroes, they would, um, for instance, slow records down to figure oh, sure. out what the... Um, now, you can do that digitally now. Yeah. But um, that's how they would do it to figure out what are their drumming heroes doing. Um, and in emulating, you know, you when you're starting out on drums, you usually have fewer drums and worse drums than your heroes <laughs> yeah. and so you're figuring out how to emulate things and in the process of that you can come up with your own deal and, and own sometimes voice, so to speak yeah and sometimes even when you misunderstood mm -hmm. what was happening I mean there's a fill I can think of that I do fairly regularly where that I misunderstood what was happening on the drums I got I got the order wrong yeah but I prefer the way I do it. Yeah. Now. Oh. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just it's fun. like cooking. Like, oh. Yeah. I didn't do it the exact way Mom did it, but I did it, and I kind of like the result. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And those discoveries are fun. Um. Neil Pert. Mm -hmm. Or how do they say it in Canadian? Uh, in Canada, they would say Peart. Peart. I mean, I should probably say that in America too, but whatever. <laughs> but, but we're in America. We yeah. do what we want. Yeah. Uh, I watched last night. It was like a eight and a half minute drum solo when he was live in Frankfurt mm -hmm. and I was like oh, what is this so impressive like why has Ben so preoccupied with Neil Pert mm -hmm. and I watched it and I was like oh my gosh this is incredible <laughs> like it's one of those things where, like I don't know why I'm so in awe of it but like you just you go to you do certain things and you're like this is incredible yeah. and uh, you know being kind of a a dunce within drumming specifically but just music like I was like this is this is pretty impressive like it was like I don't know, 20 I don't, uh, uh, drum cymbals and yeah. whatever else around yep. him, or maybe more. And I was like, oh, man. And he just, to go for that long, too, all by himself, to sit on the stage. Right. I was I was like, okay. I get a little bit of what, what why Ben uh, admires and reveres him so much. So, But help me understand a little bit more of why he was so impactful to you as a drummer. Yeah, well, I, I discovered Rush as a band. I, I was utterly ignorant of them until uh, there's very few things in life that I have to thank MTV for. <laughs> um, just, uh, it's, a, it's a really small number. <laughs> You're not the first person that I would ever think to even mention MTV. Yeah, but I do have to uh, say that uh, that was a platform on which uh, in 1985 that I saw um, the music video for the song The Big Money, which is the first track off uh, the Power Windows album. Mm -hmm. and that began kind of a discovery so this watching this drummer who I didn't even know who he was at the time uh, all of my senses were assaulted and inspired Yeah, like this drum set is you just having a reaction to what you were watching yeah you this, is, even... this guy has complete control of his drum kit which is massive mm -hmm. This at the time he had this beautiful candy apple red brass hardware <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, it was... You're salivating right now, Ben. It's yeah, a little unbecoming. Yeah. <laughs> Went back to my peachy. To... <laughs> um, and uh, the, the drum performance was this mixture of planning, precision, uh, very, uh, very intentional with the arrangement of the song, very difficult, yeah, and taking full use of the whole kit. Yeah. So this all the, this whole thing together, um, I was like, "Wow, what is going on here?" So that became that began a journey. Then, as I that was the first Rush album that I got, and then I realized actually there's more to these guys than meets the eye. So now I find out and simply performance and music. right, yeah. There's um, not only are they all uh, in their own guitar, bass, drums considered in their own fields as some of the best musicians. Yeah. But they're serious. Uh, they're fun. Um, they don't take themselves seriously, but they take their music seriously. Mm -hmm. And um, so even that being my first album, I found out, oh, Neil wrote all the lyrics. Yeah. So now I'm looking at the lyrics and realizing 
on that album in particular, he's uh, greatly. Then I f- find out, oh, Neil's like a voracious reader. That's yeah. just, I mean, that's how he got the nickname, the Professor. Yeah. So, um, which you are as well, and so that probably immediately like you're like. Oh, well, there's yeah. So there's a connection there. Yeah. I certainly I've always loved books, and then I see this isn't just like, hey Susie, will you be my girl? Yeah. This is, um, songs which are at that time Neil was reading a lot of the golden age of American fiction, John Dos Passos and Hemingway and Steinbeck and things like this. Mm-hmm. And that was coming out in the themes of his lyrics um, and what he, what they were choosing to write about in songs. So I realized pretty quickly these guys have a heft and a weight mm. that's worth exploring. Yeah, check something else off the, off the of, of, of value. Yeah. And not just simple, pleasurable right. music. And so, yeah, and then so just proceeded to follow them. I think I saw them seven or eight times live um, over the years and always, you know, consummate professionals putting mm-hmm. on. So uh, in, in many respects, although they very much did musically pursue the aggression and um, that rock and roll affords, rock and, the volume and the... Mm-hmm in your face aspect yeah um personally and professionally they were not at all your stereotypical yeah you know you're worried like oh my gosh are these guys going to go on a heroin bender or right yeah um so um yeah that's how i came and so i just kind of followed over the years and his drumming then so as i could follow them from there and then went backwards to the stuff that i had not listened to that they had already put out. Yeah. Um, that became probably my most important teacher as I listened to and played along. Like, he, like, if I'm a basketball fan, so the way that uh, I would watch, say, Steph Curry or Michael Jordan, even growing up, like, and wanting to imitate him, that was for you. Uh, yeah. The, your, the one you wanted to imitate. Yeah. And if you, if you do your level best to imitate Michael Jordan or Steph Curry, right. You'll make some progress. I mean, as a basketball player. Yeah. Um, Unnoticeable, but yes. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> no, completely indiscernible. Yeah. <laughs> really? Um, you learned that from him? <laughs> um, yeah, but certainly. Um, so, yeah, I have to. And there I'm with, uh, and certainly you saw this when he passed away just a couple months ago. Uh, I am one of a huge number yeah. of drummers who have almost an identical story uh, where... Uh, he was kind of their functional primary teacher. Yeah. So um, it's an impressive legacy. Because uh, because of, like, it, did he put out some things that were instructional, or was it just like listening to it over and over and over again? You began to kind of figure out how he thought and how yeah. he performed. Primarily the latter. Okay. He did put out a couple of videos uh, later on in the last, like, 15 years mm-hmm. uh, that where he explained some things and his approach to drum soloing and things like that. But primarily, the thing with Neil's drumming was it was orchestrational. He, he's got his uh, drum set, the orchestra, and uh, also compositional. Yeah. So there's many jazz drummers, Gene Krupa, Buddy Rich, uh, Max Roach, other guys that have been very influential to jazz drummers and are continue to be very influential, but it's a slightly different kind of influential Neil's influence is more accessible because he, he says, I have written a drum part for this song. Mm. That part is exactly the part I'm going to play on when you see me live. Mm. With maybe slight variations, but... Right. Uh, and not because that's the only thing I can play, but because I spent the time to figure out in the studio sure. exactly yeah. what I wanted to say on this song. Yeah. So because of that... Um, an army of air drummers was at every Rush concert. Yeah, I've heard he's the most air drummed yeah. uh, to drummer. Yeah, because they know what's coming and, and love uh, what he did. So there are some drummers where that's, uh, like on the jazz side, where that's anathema. They're like, I can't, the, the nature of the jazz. The ad the innovation. The right, kind of which the I, totally, I totally get. That, that style is not for everybody. Yeah. And I don't want to. I don't want to hear that when I'm listening to jazz. Right. I want a guy who's never going to give me the same performance. Yes. Yeah. Um, but for his context, 
um, not only was it effective for the band, it proved, um, I don't think by design, but it just happened that way that he became, he was influential as a teacher based on the construction of his drum parts. Yeah. And the whole package, not only did he construct them, uh, play them live, but the whole package of the sound of his drums, mm -hmm. the sound of him drumming, very powerful drummer, even to the, the last tour they did, yeah. his drum tech would be like, you don't understand how hard he hits. Yeah, sure. You try doing this when you're 60 with how hard he hits. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, you know, the, his drum tech is six feet away. He sees how hard he hits. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it's not rocket science as to why he would occasionally struggle with things like tendonitis and things like that. <laughs> occasionally, yeah. sure. So, um, yeah, it was the, the whole package. So, um, and I, I think I'm remembering you saying this uh, before, and um, you, I think you mentioned that he, uh, oddly enough, along with R.C. Sproul, yeah. are two of the most influential people in your life. Yeah, and, I would and, have to say, on the drumming side, for sure, it was Neil. Mm -hmm. uh, and I doubt that when people hear me play, that that's the first thing they think of. Sure. More so maybe earlier on when I was a little more, um, you know, young musicians are still shaking off their influences a little bit. Yeah. You're working out your own style. Yeah. But um, uh, it's probably not the first per person someone would think was a big influence on me. So, yeah, but as far as my drumming, for sure. And then I have to say as a Christian and helping me think through theology and scripture, uh, Sproul would be on that side of it. Uh, I guess part of my curiosity is with how much you love drumming. Uh, mm -hmm. Does it, it exist in your life? Uh, here's where it gets a little more serious. Yeah. Um, uh, does it exist in your life just kind of as a, uh, kind of a, a compartment that just you love so much, but does it synthesize, to what extent does it synthesize with your faith and um, I mean, aside from playing worship music and whatnot, but like, does, has it affected how you think? Has Neil Peart affected how you think as a Christian? Hmm. Um, or is it really just the, the, the technical performance and just kind of like the, all the musical admiration that you have for him? I think it would be in the, um, in the common grace area of things. So mm -hmm. where I see... Um, it's an area where I can see particularly well the beauty of God's creation. Sure. How he made music, how he, even the instruments that we make can be so beautiful. He made people who can make things that are so beautiful and uh, uh, um, make a sound that's so pleasing Yeah. in that vein. There's no, there hasn't been direct crossover. Like, sure. Uh, now, over the years, I've been slightly... Uh, annoyed and virtually argued with uh, Neil. I say virtually, like just in my head, because you couldn't find his number at the time. Yeah, <laughs> but he was coming from a um, uh, agnostic, yeah, you know, perspective. Um, and as far as I know, that that remained unchanged. It, I think lyrically, you see it popping up to in different degrees of vigor. Yeah. Throughout um, uh, their lyrics, like some albums seem like it's almost not there. Power Windows actually seems to, the last song on Power Windows seems to have a door open where it's like there's things I don't understand. There's things about the supernatural uh, in this song, Mystic Rhythms, which seems uh, willing to entertain the idea. You go all the way from that to other songs where he's pretty... Um, it's not a main theme in their writing, in his writing, but he does occasionally, he's a little bit strident, like, look, I don't believe in a blind watchmaker, and I don't believe in, you know. Right. So. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly, what I, from what I was reading, he um, he likes his freedom. I think he called himself a, a bleeding heart libertarian yeah. at, tarms, at times. Yeah. But uh, I think when he went through personal tragedy with losing his... Uh, daughter and wife, first wife, uh, within a matter of what months? Yeah, uh, like that kind of forced him to wrestle with the nature of the supernatural. As he kind of quit for about a year and kind of went on a uh, just a soul searching, so to speak. Yeah, uh, motorcycle trek across 
the yeah. U.S. or across the, I don't know, some distance. Oh, yeah. And then, but then he, so I think he still kind of loved and held on to that sense of freedom that he appreciated uh, being the libertarian side, but then right. also socially, like a lot of artists, uh, musicians, uh, secular artists and whatnot, maybe even Christian artists, but they just didn't appreciate the um, conservative Christian perspective on, um, you know, social issues. And yeah. Kind of. Uh, distance themselves from it that way. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting too because as, um, and I would have wanted to talk to Neil about it if the if, if the occasion ever presented itself. Yo, Neil. But yeah, if if um, he, because he had a very, um, I mean, Puritan in a good way, work ethic mm-hmm. and like personal behavioral ethic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I would want to push a little bit on, like, well, where does that come from? You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you understand there's not, it doesn't directly follow from your worldview. Yeah. Um, and and he might just say, well, I know it doesn't, but it's it's who I am, so that's, you know. Um, I sent, when, when his wife and daughter died, um, I sent to Modern Drummer, which is uh, one of the, you know, main drawing magazines, and he had a relationship with them over the years. So I had no way to get a hold of him or anything. Yeah. So this was 97, I think. I had an, And I knew he had taken a bicycle trip uh, across China. Was it? Parts, oh, yes. Hey, okay. uh, back early 80s or whatever. And I knew this tragedy had befallen. Anyway, the a secondhand store, I picked up this old... I don't know if it's Collier's Magazine or something. It was a compilation. It's like from the late 1800s, early 1900s. But one of the long stories in there with the cool old woodcut drawings and all this stuff was of a guy who rode his bike like across China, but it was like 100 years ago. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I'm sure he would be interested in this. Yeah. So that, along with C.S. Lewis's problem of pain, mm. I sent to Modern, to Modern Drummer to say, could you please forward this to him or whatever huh. uh, I subsequently got it back just with a note that said you know the artist is not accepting any mail at this time yeah which was I mean I think he was totally off the grid yeah so huh. I sometimes wonder if he had received those things yeah he's smart enough for all I know he's read C.S. Lewis I mean he's he's very widely read yeah um, but the problem of pain obviously is coming from the wanting to be sympathetic to like personal tragedy yeah 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 so, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he's an interesting character uh, as I as I read a little bit about him. I mean, he seemed like as uh, he seemed like a romantic at heart, mm-hmm. and, but he seemed like he seemed smart, intentional, hardworking. You know, all those things. Um, I, I read that he um, had two two questions that he kind of lived by. I don't know if you were familiar with these, but um, the first one was, "What is the most excellent thing I can do today?" Mm-hmm. Um, and then what would my 16 year old self do? And mm-hmm. like those kind of spoke to me to kind of this sense of intentionality, but then also just, um, like he kind of, uh, he wanted to live life and have experiences. Um, and did that, did that sense of philosophy or perspective affect you growing up? Well, I, uh, I, I appreciate what he's saying there about that, that he didn't want to betray the 16 year old. Mm-hmm. Because I think he would see it as a compromise, right? Right. Um, yeah, I think that's good. I think that our um, um, what would drive, I think what would drive me nuts, and what he didn't drive him nuts, at least to my knowledge, is I can't develop. So, for instance, those two aphorisms or truisms without grounding. Sure. I personally am not wired to do that. I have to have grounding to do that. Right. And so something that's giving me warrant to do it. Right. So because most excellent otherwise could be, I mean, to somebody, frankly, to somebody who is like a suicide bomber or whatever, that may be the most excellent thing they could do today. Correct. Right. So, um, in it's one of those things where, like, if you if you know who Neil is and you look back over his life, you can appreciate that aphorism and say, yeah, I think a lot of times you've lived up to that. Yeah. Um, but there is, um, 
it it's not super satisfying to I can appreciate it but it's not super satisfying to me because um, uh, I need and maybe he would even see this as a weakness but I, I want a fundamental I want something external to me mm. that I'm uh, accountable to accountable to given over to yeah that says therefore this should happen I mean in the, right. in the case of the Christian you're talking about the word of God and, yeah and, and who God is yeah um, did you did you go through any uh, with how big of an influence he was on you you know not just technically but as you began to appreciate more of his uh, ability to think um, and his intentionality with how he did things um, I, I, I guess I say, I remember growing up and loving sports and thinking like oh I hope that that really good athlete as a Christian because right. then it would make it, you know, then it would be like, oh, that's that so seal great. the deal. Yeah, right. he's like the greatest. He's a true idol right. type of a thing. Yeah. Uh, did you go through any moments like that where you were like, oh, maybe he could and and just... Yeah, I would think, yeah, uh, that's that's true. That's kind of endearing in a way, I suppose, you know, but um, I suppose the reason God doesn't let us approach that too much is... It's uh, it, it can veer really close to idolatry, sure. You know, yeah. um, but yeah, of course. If um, usually my thought would go like this: <clears throat> It'd be great if Neil was a Christian, but then within about like five seconds, I'd be like, "Well, but it'd also be great if my neighbor was a Christian." Sure. So I I can't I don't want to really be so shallow. As to be like, I want my hero to come to faith. Yeah. Of course I do. Yeah. But um, I would usually kind of dismiss it. In other words, offer a prayer. Say, well, mm-hmm. Lord, save Neil. Mm-hmm. Um, but, save Jane next door. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's interesting. Because uh, I, I found myself thinking similarly uh, last month when Kobe Bryant died in the helicopter mm-hmm. crash. Because I was like... This is this is a news story because he's such a prominent figure, mm-hmm. and it is sad and it impacts me uh, because he was part of my life growing up because I'm a basketball fan. Mm-hmm. But there were you know a number of other people on the helicopter with him, not to mention just people all over the world who are you know dying, suffering, right uh, every day, and it does it. It's kind of odd to wrestle with, though, this idea of relevance and fame and, and mm-hmm. how, to, how we interact with those that we uh, admire, like you said, for the common grace reasons. Like, wow, mm-hmm. they're just so good at those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, yeah, that, that's interesting. I think I, I, that, that it's okay to say, well, God gave this person an outsized footprint mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And so we acknowledge... It's no different than uh, when King Saul or King David died. Yeah, there's an. It's more important that uh, and a bigger deal than if you know Biff David's butler died. Yeah, you know probably not Biff in the Hebrew. But, <laughs> it's a tra- rough translation. But um, that part I think we get, um, and it's an acknowledgement of a cessation, a permanent cessation of those gifts and that footprint. Yeah. I mean, the legacy continues on. Yeah. There's still an influence and whatnot. Right. Yeah. But the, I, I, I think it's kind of unavoidable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, it is, uh, I, I guess, yeah, part of the reason I just brought it up in general, because I was just curious to know um, that I know for me, sports was the, was the realm where it existed, where mm-hmm. there was just this admiration for physical feats and, mm-hmm. you know, not to mention that, but the, or not to, uh, also to mention that, like, you know, within sports, there's a competitive aspect and you want, you want your team to win and you want your team to be the best and you kind of almost root for legacies and mm-hmm. uh, the team's reputation as much as you root for a single win. Right. And, um, but I, I I struggle with that, and my wife's always like, "Why does sports bother you so much? Like when my team loses or whatever, why right. does it affect your emotional state so much?" I don't know. Like, yeah. it just does, and it's only because I, you know, that's a team where I grew up. Well, you're invested and, in it. That's one. That's one, and that's that's not inherently bad. I think one thing that I saw after uh, Neil passed away was that there's 
Uh, one area I think where I would for sure um, disagree with him, he was very private, mm-hmm. you know, as exemplified perfectly by the fact that, you know, his death was announced like three days after it happened. Um, and had largely, except for a very close circle, had kept the whole thing secret about his cancer. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was brain cancer, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, he would, although he was not a misanthrope and he wasn't antisocial, he definitely had the reputation of the most standoffish of the trio. Yeah. Um, because he was highly uncomfortable with a sense of fame. A sense of fame and uh, the, that what people would assume that they knew about him. Mm-hmm. And he that's where he would get defensive and say, you don't know me. Yeah. You, you, now, here's where I would disagree with that, and I think you see this in the light of when, when he passed, because I saw a lot of drummers, even non-drummers, echoing you know, people that appreciated the lyrics or whatever. Uh, his influence was just, uh, I think you saw much broader than just a drummer, there's the lyrical component, and there's just um, he just left a big wake. Yeah, uh, that's maybe we'll be able to articulate that better as time goes on. But um, I would say that if I was talking to Neil, I'd say it's not fair to say I don't know you at all. Mm-hmm. I do know aspects of you. Yeah, and if I've if I've if you've this is your musical expression. Yeah. Even if I've never read a word you've said in an interview. Right. If this is your lyrical output and this is your musical expression on the drums, I know a facet of you. Yeah. And I've spent a lot of time in fact, with... it's this facet that he chose to put out there. Right. Yeah. So, and I've spent, and as of thousands of other drummers, a lot of time inhabiting your world that you chose to express on your instrument. So it's not fair to say I don't know you at all. You speak through your lyrics and you speak through your music and your drumming. Yeah. So, um, yes, I don't know you in the sense that your daughter does or that your bandmates do. There's, um, but no one except God knows you completely. Right. But you, I do know an aspect of you. That's where I would disagree with him. Yeah. And have more sympathy with, I was listening to Dennis Prager, the, conservative radio uh, host uh, it was a couple years ago and he does three hours a day on the radio. It's a long time. It's a long time. Well with radio uh, with commercial breaks it's probably like 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, um, but no he's and, and he's uh, and he said that you know he's flattered when people call and they say you know I feel like I know you and yeah. he's a genial personality and stuff and he says he kind of takes the opposite approach to Neil he's like well, you do know me to a certain extent. I'm with you for yeah. three hours a day. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. hearing me on the radio. So right. you you don't yeah you don't know me like my wife does. Yeah, but it's it'd be foolish for me to say you don't know me at all. And it almost seems like uh, with Neil Pert, like that it was it was more of you don't know me in a way that satisfies me. Right. Uh, and because it and, and to me that's where the romantic side kind of comes out a little bit of him is that like I I do this because I love the you know being. I love drumming and I love thinking about how to talk about human experience within my lyrics, like mm-hmm. those sorts of things. And, uh, but he, he did always seem very cautious with fame and like he, he, they were the, uh, like they would tour with other bands that I heard when they first started out and like, they just didn't always love when they felt like, you know, money was knocking on their door and people were trying to over commercialize them. And mm-hmm. so it almost seemed like he was, um, just, preemptively uh, running against that sort of a thing, which it, which is endearing in and of itself. Yeah, he never, and I totally understand, he never wanted his, he never wanted his face to be famous. Right. Had no desire for that. Right. He was okay with his hands being famous in right. the sense of um, the influence as a, as a drummer. Yeah. But... Um, and he was paid handsomely for... for yeah, and got the respect and the accolades yeah. and all of it. Um but I, I, I think you've struck on something there that it's just um, for him to not have control of if if he if he allows the truth that people can know him that he does not have any control over. Sure. I don't think that sits well with him. Yeah. And so in, in so instead he kind of chose to deny 
what to me is kind of an obvious reality and, and give it an absolute sure. pro- prohibition and say, <laughs> yeah. you don't know me at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can say that, but I don't think it's true. It's almost like, hey, I'm going to get the biggest lawn possible so that you, when you walk by my house, you cannot see anything inside my house, right? Right. Um, and, I, and, and so, like I said before, I just I, I wanted to bring it up because I was curious to know how you thought about it. Uh, not that I thought it was necessarily bad to idolize something that was so secular, or idolize or, or just value and be excited about something that was so secular, but uh, I just wonder, like... On, on the other side, do I get as excited and feel as invigorated by things of my faith? Uh, right. And it so not to say that, okay, this is not bad. Yeah. But the intensity and the extent to which both time and, you know, degree mm-hmm. is, how do I kind of wrestle and reconcile those things to like, okay, well, I mean, some people will say, okay, forget it. I'm just not going to be a fan of sports at all. Or right. I'm not going to love music like that at all. I'm only right. going to love, you know. Gregorian chants. Right. Um, so I and I think I can give a helpful response to that because when I was a teenager, when I was first discovering, I mean, I was all in uh, uh, musically, and and so I would be, uh, um, I would think like, geez, Louise, like, do I love this band too much? Do it because when I would think, okay, right. if somebody put a gun to my head and said, okay, you know, you have to deny your faith. Or like, like put in this goofy false, you know, either either you have to ignore Kobe Bryant for the rest of your life right. or you can be a Christian or whatever. And in my, you know, fleshly uh, 13-year-old mind, I'd be like, geez, it would be really hard to just give up. Yeah. Um, so fast forward to where I am now at 28. Um, <laughs> and... I think what's what's all the appreciation for Neil and for the many drummers I love and all, all that music is still there. Um, but I can truly say that if I had to cast it aside, I totally would. I mean, in favor of if somebody was like, do you want the riches of Christ or do you want that? I'd say that's not even worthy of a question. Right. I, I would ditch it all tomorrow. No, no question. And I think that's not the awesomeness of Ben maturing so much as in 28 years, that's yeah. Uh, of, uh, just the Holy spirit working on me and saying, no, the, the real joy, you know, as you get echoes of what guys like Edwards have seen and things like, uh, where, where you're like, no, the real joy and satisfaction is to be found in Christ and in his word. And as that matures, as that, as the Holy spirit's working on you, um, if, you give yourselves those thought experiments. It's easier to say no if it if it has to go, it has to go. Yeah, yeah, I I, I get that. Um, although, like that that kind of it, uh, like those those sorts of uh, ideas are helpful because they force you to to push it to the edge of the extreme, right, and force you to a decision point. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I I always find myself kind of backtracking, thinking like, okay, but I'm not at that cliff. You know what I mean? Like, right. And so. And probably never going to be there. Yeah, I mean, nobody's going to force you to say Kobe Bryant or Jesus. Right. Like, and for me, it probably wouldn't be Kobe, but, uh, uh, you know, yeah, I, I get it. Uh, but it, but it, it's just kind of Curry like... Curry Abdul Jabbar. <laughs> yeah. Bill Russell. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, for me, it probably would be Steph Curry right now. But um, but it, it is kind of like that idea of, okay, how, how do I... And not just for the sake of my wife's perception of me, because she's like, wow, you just need some space, don't you, after a loss. Um, but it is it is kind of, um, it's just weird to think through. Um, yeah. And, and I, I, I totally get it for, uh, I don't know if I totally get it. I understand aspects of it for the realities that I think that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's it, a, it's just kind of, it, it's kind of a restlessness within <coughs> me that I'm like, oh, how, how, do, how should I be thinking through this? And not that I dislike myself for it, but I feel a little dissatisfied with it. Yeah. Well, I think that's good. You, uh, that's good. Um, I think Christians should wrestle with that a little bit. There's always going to be, um, you know, often you would, uh, I can remember when I was younger, I would hear, uh, say, a, a preacher or Christian personality say things like, like, look, we act like this at a football game. And, and yeah. why, why don't, you know, so why don't you, so that's a, as I reflect on it, it's fair and unfair. 
It's unfair in the sense that, well, wait a minute. When I go to church, I'm going to church to worship a perfectly holy God mm -hmm. who has saved me uh, by uh, setting all his wrath on his son. That's going to elicit a different set of responses than sure. the, a, a touchdown. Yeah. Um, however, at the same time, it's also fair in the sense that when I look at Revelation, I see it's going to be very exuberant forever Yeah. when we meet our maker. Sure. So it kind of gives us an iteration on which to think like, wow, if I'm as excited about this, about, you know, my team winning a championship, yeah. how much greater than, and I, yeah, that's fair. I, I remember hearing uh, John Piper say like, you know, you, you go and see and do certain things for the sake of feeling how small you are. So like you go to the Grand Canyon to feel how minuscule you are and that sense of awe-inspiring awe -inspiring experience is, it's helpful, it's valuable to wrestle with and just kind of sit and feel your smallness and its bigness because it helps you begin to wrestle with the uh, proportion of you, you know, when uh, in relation to who God is. Right. Um, yeah. That's go, fair. Going yeah. to the Redwoods gives me something different than looking at the anthill. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, Ben, uh, you've got to go and... Um, uh, I, I gotta let you go. So, uh, <laughs> I suppose. <yeah. laughs> Thank you so much for the these uh, couple hours. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a joy. Yeah, and um, you know, uh, God bless with Saybrook and um, who's a Miss Sydney and the Miss Sydney and the Downtown Saints. I keep wanting to say the Boondock Saints. <laughs> I, hey, whatever works. <laughs> Yeah. All right. But yes, thank you so much again. And uh, we will um, hopefully cross paths again soon. Take in, care. In a podcast way. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed these episodes with Ben. Please be safe and disciplined as we battle COVID-19. God bless.